I'm Jorge Salazar with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. What makes Kevlar stop a bullet at the atomic level? The properties and materials emerge from their molecular or atomic structure, yet many details between the micro and the macro remain a mystery to science. Scientists are actively researching the rational design of targeted supramolecular architectures with the goal of engineering their structural dynamics and their response to environmental cues. A team of chemists at the University of California, San Diego has now designed a two-dimensional protein crystal that toggles between states of varying porosity and density. This is a first in biomolecular design that combined experimental studies with computation done on supercomputers through an allocation on Exceed, the extreme science and engineering discovery environment funded by the National Science Foundation. Exceed awarded the UCSD researchers over a million core hours on the Maverick supercomputer, a dedicated visualization and data analysis resource that uses graphics processing units at the Texas Advanced Computing Center. The research, published in April 2018 in Nature Chemistry, could help create new materials for renewable energy, medicine, water purification, and more. On the line to discuss the research are study co-authors and chemists Akif Tezjan, Francesco Paisani, and Robert Alberstein of the University of California, San Diego. Welcome to the podcast. Thank, Thank you for having us. So what are the main findings of your study that was published in April of 2018 in Nature Chemistry that used computer simulations to design from scratch a protein whose folding can be controlled? So we have previously reported the self-assembly of this artificial two-dimensional protein architecture, which showed an interesting behavior that we call auxaticity, where these crystalline assemblies can actually open and close in coherence. And as they do, they shrink or expand equally in X and Y directions, which is opposite of what normal materials do. So we wanted to investigate what these motions are due to and what governs them. We did an extensive set of molecular dynamics calculations and experiments, which explained the basis of this unusual uh, structural dynamics of these artificial proteins, uh, based on which we were able to make rational decisions and alter the structural dynamics of the assembly. Is there a simple way to describe oxyticity? It seems like what's happening is that when you pull on this molecule, it actually uh, gets fatter, and when you push it, it gets thinner. It, it seems to defy uh, reasoning. Right, and so it's, that is itself basically the essence of oxyticity. So the, the vast majority of materials that we're familiar with, I like to use the example of rubber. Right? If you pull on rubber you know, to horizontally, it gets much thinner in the vertical direction, and oxytic materials do just the opposite. When you pull horizontally, they actually expand vertically and vice versa. So these have been studied for a little while now, but this is the first time that a protein assembly has been shown to exhibit this sort of property. Yeah, is there an example that maybe people listening could relate to this material? There's actually one that I can think of that many people might be familiar with. It's called a, a Hoberman sphere. Uh, and you may have experienced this maybe in elementary school. It's, a, it's sort of a hinged, uh, looks like a spiky ball. And when you pull on it, it actually expands to form a, a spherical shape. Would you please describe the motivation behind uh, looking into these proteins? 
the overarching goal, the fundamental goal, is based on the fact uh, that proteins are the ultimate building blocks for nature to build uh, advanced materials. So essentially, all uh, the majority of biological complexity is driven by materials and machines that are made from protein building blocks. Everything in our cells, our skin, everything that you can think of that's biological. So our goal was to be able to do the same thing using proteins as building blocks to create new types of materials with advanced properties. The example that we're studying here was essentially a fruit of those efforts where we used this particular protein that has square-like shape, which we attach to one another through chemical linkages uh, that were reversible and acted like hinges and allowed these materials to form very well-ordered crystals that were also dynamic due to the flexibility of these chemical bonds, which ended up giving us this new emergent property. So our idea was to be able to build complex materials like evolution has done using proteins as building blocks. Professor Tess, John, may I follow up on that? You have previously published work on the molecule C98RHUA. What's special about this molecule? Why did you choose it to work with? Uh, we used it simply because of its structure and its symmetry. It is like a square that has fourfold symmetry. So that means if you rotate it 90 degrees around its principal axis, then it's the same. We know that if you have a fourfold symmetric building block, like a tile, you can essentially propagate it infinitely in two dimensions to create a two-dimensional lattice. So we chose this building block primarily based on its symmetry, inherent symmetry, and biology has given us proteins with different symmetries. We chose this one because it was easy to make and it fulfilled all the other criteria. Would you please describe um, one of the concepts that was important in um, and being able to control uh, protein folding, and this is uh, the concept of the free energy landscape. Yes, yeah, so a free energy landscape uh, looks like a natural landscape. So you have valleys, mountains, and uh, you have mountain passes. And so that essentially is the same thing that you find in a free energy landscape. The valleys become the most stable configurations of your protein assembly, so are the configurations that the molecular system prefer because are the more stable and the low energy, free energy configurations. And then you have mountains that instead are the configuration that are highly energetic, so are those that are more unlikely to be seen because they are associated with the cost in free energy, so you need to pay to actually go up to the mountains. And then there are these mountain passes that are essentially provide routes for the molecular system to go from one particular stable structure to another particular stable structure. And so the material that we studied has a minimum in the free energy when it's closed, but when it's synthesized, it stays in the open configuration and then it slowly closes because of the free energy is pushing toward the closed configuration because it's a lower free energy, more stable, and so the system prefers to stay there. But just a little bit of shaking and the protein assembly up, opens up again, which shows that there are essentially almost a bistable system with an open and closed configuration. 
although the open is more like a mega stable state and it closes up as soon as has enough time to go there. Would you please walk us through the basic steps of the experiment um, that, that combined working with things in the lab and also um, working with things on supercomputers? The basic steps in terms of working with the protein experimentally is that uh, you know, these proteins are expressed in, in E. coli cells, in bacteria, and they are purified via standard protein purification techniques. And once they are purified, the chemical linkages that form between them are a function of the oxidation state. And so, you know, we can tune these with the addition of redox active chemicals, but over time, they tend to oxidize with exposure to air, and these form the chemical linkages to actually create the crystals. So once the crystals are formed, the big characterization becomes the open or closedness of the crystals themselves. And to do this, we use electron microscopy. So electron microscopy allows us to actually, gives us the resolution to observe individual protein molecules. And because the crystals open and close coherently, which is to say that the holes, the pores themselves are the same shape throughout an entire crystal, we can take many, many, many hundreds of pictures of these different crystals and do statistics on what the actual conformations are. That's most of the experimental aspect. In terms of the computation, we use all-atom simulations and uh, we use the software in AMD, which is designed to be highly parallel and scale very well to um, <clears throat> large numbers of compute nodes. And to actually understand how the crystal opens and closes, we used a reduced system, um, which is just a subset of four proteins linked together. And the reduced system that we looked at not only forms a single pore, um, but it could be tiled infinitely, uh, just translated within the 2D plane to form the same overall architecture as the bulk crystal. So this reduced system allowed us to basically made these sort of calculations feasible for us because, you know, there are still hundreds of thousands of atoms in these, you know, even this reduced system, but with a little bit of finessing to get it uh, to be a representative of the bulk-like state, you know, things like keeping it, you know, within a 2D plane, things like that, we were really able to validate uh, this model as being representative of what we observe in the experiment. Would you speak to the, uh, the computational challenges that you faced in this study of the protein-free energies? Yeah, so typically free energy calculations are very expensive and very challenging because uh, essentially what you try to do is to sample all possible configurations of uh, a molecular system that contains thousands of atoms and you want to know exactly how many positions these atoms can acquire during a, a simulation. So it takes a lot of time and a lot of computer resources. And as uh, Robert uh, explained, we couldn't really afford to do the calculation for the entire protein assembly. So we use a reduced dimensionality system made by these uh, four subunits that, however, capture the underlying physics of the opening and closing of the protein assembly. And we validated the system extensively. And so then uh, what we did was to perform what is called uh, umbrella sampling simulations. And essentially, in a few words, what you do, you try to calculate what is the work that you have to do in order to open and close the pore. 
And this work is uh, related to the free energy that is uh, described the process of opening and closing. And so through this uh, technique, sampling all possible configuration, you are able to extract this profile that describes the free energy landscape along one particular direction, which is the opening and closing variable that describes the process. What computational resources from exceed the extreme science and engineering discovery environment funded by the National Science Foundation? What from exceed did you use and how did it help you overcome some of these challenges? So as we said, these uh, simulations are very expensive, but fortunately exceed uh, has provided us with an allocation on uh, Maverick, which is uh, the GPU computing clusters uh, the, in Texas, attack, and that was really very useful to us because uh, the software that we use, the NumD software that Robert mentioned, uh, runs very well on GPUs, and so that allows us to speed up the calculations by order of magnitudes. And so nowadays we can afford the calculation that probably like five or ten years ago we couldn't even dream about just because of this development both on the software, NMD, and on the hardware. So all these GPU computing clusters that Exceed provides are actually quite useful for all molecular dynamic simulations. Did you work with other supercomputer centers? Um, did you use any other Exceed um, centers for this work? Not specifically for this work, but uh, we have uh, other uh, types of allocations on different uh, exit centers. And so we have uh, allocations here at the San Diego Supercomputer Center on uh, Comet, as well on the other uh, CPU computing uh, cluster in uh, Texas, Stampede 2. But we didn't use those resources for this type of, of uh, studies because, uh, as I mentioned, the GPU, all the simulations were run on GPU, and the Maverick was the perfect choice for these type of applications. Did the supercomputer work? Did it guide what you did in, in the lab, or was it the other way around? Or, or how, Could you speak to this connection between the computation and the physical experiment? It was a little bit of back and forth, actually. So as you mentioned, the original paper on the C98 Rue was already published, and it was basically a, a totally experimental characterization of the system and what it did in terms of its dynamic behavior. So the beginning of this project was very much applying the computation to try to get, as Francesca said, the atomic molecular scale behavior and trying to understand really what was going on at a resolution that's very difficult to capture experimentally. But once we understood that and we understood the thermodynamic drivers that shaped the free energy landscape itself, we kind of turned it on its head a little bit. So when we set about trying to modify this free energy landscape via irrational changes to the protein structure itself, we then first made those changes in the computer and calculated what the modified free energy landscape should look like. And then we verified those predictions experimentally. And so it's, it was really a combined effort between the two different approaches that really allowed us to address this problem very thoroughly. If I can follow up on that, I think this is a, a beautiful example of uh, the synergy between theory and the experiment, because the experiment posed the first question, theory and computer simulation addressed that question, providing some uh, understanding of the mechanism, and then we use computer simulation to make 
hypotheses, make predictions, and ask the experiments to test the validity of these hypotheses. And uh, everything actually worked out very nicely because uh, the simulation explained the experiments at the beginning, the predictions that were made were confirmed by the experiment at the end, and so really is an example of a perfect synergy between uh, experiments and uh, theoretical modeling. And if I may add, it's, this is you know, for a chemist especially, uh, for chemists who like to build things and make things, this is essentially a dream, a molecular dream, to be able to uh, not only measure, but be able to understand in detail and be able to predict, um, especially computationally, what we can expect experimentally. And one can envision doing these things for smaller, smaller molecules and other types of systems to predict their behavior. But the fact that we can do it on molecules that are composed of hundreds of thousands of atoms is uh, quite unprecedented. What is the next step? Where is this research going next? Well, where I would like it to go is to be able to, for example, to be able to make materials whose structural dynamics can be engineered with respect to, for example, specific molecular targets that can be captured or released. Or if we want to make molecular membranes, and these ordered lattices are very well for that, can we actually selectively uh, pass through or block the passage of specific biological molecules? So that would be a direct application. And we should be able to compute those or predict those based on computation. And also mechanical properties. If we want to make materials out of these systems, can we alter the mechanical properties of these systems based on molecular engineering and molecular predictions? Those are the um, at least practical targets that we would like to uh, go after. Maybe Professor Paisani can say a few things about the theoretical or computational aspect. Yeah, so on the theoretical and computational side, I would say that uh, this study opens up a few different avenues. Definitely, it would be great to have uh, molecular models that can be more and more realistic, and there are a lot of efforts around the country and I would say around the world to use, uh, for example, machine learning approaches to develop uh, molecular models that can capture the right physics of these interactions, even in complex systems, and can speed up the simulation. That is definitely an area that will be very beneficial to studies as this uh, done by uh, Professor Tejan and Robert, because uh, they will uh, facilitate the understanding of the experiments, uh, experimental measurements, and will allow even more uh, realistic predictions and the viability of possible predictions that we can make will be more and more realistic. In addition to that, development on the hardware will definitely also be very beneficial because, uh, as we mentioned, uh, these calculations are very expensive. We have been uh, very fortunate to have uh, access to TAC and uh, Maverick to run the simulations on GPUs, but obviously it will, have been, uh, it will be even uh, more useful and more exciting uh, to be able to model larger systems so that we can actually capture the entire dynamics, coherent dynamics of this protein assembly, for example, during the opening and closing. And maybe, as Professor Tejan was mentioning, being able to capture the response of this material 
to the capture absorption of uh, specific targets, for example, for water purification, or drug uh, binding, uh, drug delivery, and things like that. And I'd like to add one more thing. This study also um, showed us um, how important the role of water is, uh, an active role of water in controlling the structural dynamics of complex macromolecules, which in a lot of fields get overlooked. But this study essentially showed very clearly that the dynamics of these proteins are driven actively by water dynamics, which I think brings the importance of water to the fore, which of course Professor Pazani is very intimately interested in. Um, and water's everywhere in biology. And uh, I think um, this is a nice example that shows the importance of water uh, in controlling biological molecules. Uh, for the benefit of, uh, of non-scientists listening right now, um, how does this research relate to, um, to non-scientists? Basically, you can think of it as you know, everything that we use all the time is made from uh, you know, different materials, wood or metal or whatever. And each of these have been selected for the specific properties that they impart. And so really at the heart of this research is understanding how the properties of a material arise from the underlying molecular or atomic structure is a very complex task and it's, it's very difficult to describe. And so in this case, we really sought to draw that connection as clearly as we could understand it ourselves um, and really show not only as from the experiment where we can look at you know, the macro scale behavior of these materials, but then with the computation relate that behavior back to what's actually going on at the scale of molecules. As we continue to develop as a society and, and need to develop new materials for new sorts of uh, global issues, right, as water purification or renewable energy, et cetera, understanding this relationship between the atomic structure and the materials property itself and the ability to predict those is going to become increasingly important. You've been listening to Akif Tezjan, Francesco Paisani, and Robert Alberstein of the University of California, San Diego. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.